Hello and welcome back and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. We have some special guests today. We interviewed them four years ago in San Diego at the IACP conference and they've agreed to come back on the show. Today I'm sitting here lucky to be speaking with our guests, famed DEA narcos and manhunters, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Of course you know them from the hit series Narcos on Netflix and the spin-off Narcos Mexico as they recount their exploits in chasing Colombian cocaine kingpin Pablo Escobar and the cartels in Mexico and South America. They have a book out called Manhunters that tells the story from their roots in West Virginia and Laredo, Texas, respectively, as cops to drug enforcement agents and their international pursuit to hunt down those responsible for flooding drugs into America. Welcome, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Thank you, Jim. Yep, proud to be on the show with you. Yep, me too. Thank you, Jim. Well, it's an honor to have you both, and I'm enjoying the book. I'm about halfway through. I'm not sure how it ends, but um, <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, you both started out uh, small town police officers, so it's it's not as if um, you know you're federal level agents that uh, don't really have an idea what's going on. You guys know from the ground up. So that's that's an awesome perspective. And it's important to hear what you have to say about uh, how you got to the top of the hierarchy of the cartels in South America, what that means for us today, and where we're at in this drug war, and, and what can cops take from your experiences, and, um, and how can the DEA help us uh, with our street level um, fight in drugs. So welcome. Thanks very much, Jim. We appreciate you having us on the show a second time. I guess we didn't screw up too bad the first time, so you brought us back. Um, <laughs> you know, the uh, this is a very, very strange time for law enforcement in the United States, as well as around the world. Uh, God bless the men and women in uniform out there. The, the things that they're going through, especially right now, uh, this thing about defunding the police is just this outrageously ridiculous. I, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, a stupider idea when it comes to law enforcement. You know, and Javier and I were cops for almost 38 years each. So we have a long history. And, and we appreciate you bringing up the fact that we were uniform cops before we became federal agents. Um, and quite honestly, <laughs> you know, Javier and I have talked about this quite a bit. We've done a lot of law enforcement conferences. Uh, I know what I used to think of feds when I wasn't one. Uh, and I didn't have a whole lot of respect for them. I didn't even know what DEA was, to be quite honest with you. And a friend introduced me to them. But um, we both, throughout our federal careers, you know, worked to dispel that rumor or that that it's not a rumor or myth. There's a lot of feds that are jerks, to be honest with you. But um, it seems like we were successful, you know, by working with our state and local partners uh, as well as our brother agents. So um, the. And, and just to get right into this war on drugs thing, I mean, first of all, we recognize that's probably one of the biggest misnomers that's ever been laid out there when it comes to law enforcement. Um, back in the day, we're going after Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Pablo was the world's first narco terrorist. At one point, was the world's most wanted criminal, you know, responsible for as much as 80 percent of the cocaine in the United States and then the rest of the world. And what did they send? They sent Javier and I. <laughs> that's not a war. <laughs> it's kind of a joke now, but, um, you know, we were just, we were the two boots on the ground up there working with the Columbia National Police in Medellin. 
had a ton of, of support at the embassy, other agents, analysts, headquarters, other agencies working with us. We had the U.S. Army's Delta Force down there with us. We had the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 members with us in Medellin for 18 months. You know, had some real studs there, but it's not a war. So, you know, people have always questioned us, uh, hey, you guys took out Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. You took down the whole cartel. What positive effect, if any, did that have on cocaine trafficking? Well, it probably didn't have a positive effect, but it only lasted maybe two weeks, right? Because we all know that the Calico boys stepped up. So, you know, Javier goes back down there and is, and is involved in that investigation where they take them out. Then you have the North Valley cartel step up. Then you have Don Berna step up. And if you look at, at the, the leading country for the production of cocaine today, it's still Colombia. But, so you know, so this war quote, war, isn't working the way it is, but you can't ignore it either. This legalization is just a bunch of crap, in my opinion. Um, you see what happens with the opioid crisis that's going on now. Now we've got the, the traffickers, the foreign traffickers infiltrating our country with fentanyl, which is killing, you know, the users. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, to get to the, the that's a long way to get to your question here. Javi <laughs> and I are, are big proponents of better education. You know what? At the earliest possible ages, that D.A.R.E. program, you know, that was I can't tell you how many uh, conferences we do where we talk to not only law enforcement, but corporate events and colleges. And, and the people will come up afterwards. It's like, yeah, that D.A.R.E. program. I remember that. You know, that was that was my first introduction to how bad drugs were, you know, in one of the political administrations. We're not we're, we try to say apolitical in our presentations, but one of the administrations cut the funding for that. Well, now they've secured, I think it's private funding uh, to bring the D.A.R.E. program back. But, you know, I've got five granddaughters. I'm fine with scaring the crap out of them at the earliest age if that has a positive effect on keeping them away from narcotics. But education alone is not going to do it. We still need the brave men and women in law enforcement who are willing to put themselves in harm's way even more today than has been in the past to protect us. I mean, we're the sheep now. We're not the sheepdogs out there anymore, right? Mm. Um, so you still got to have those people who are willing to, to just protect us. Um, and then DEA came up with a strategy, which we kind of like. It's, it's called their 360 strategy, where they go into a community and they try to bring all facets of a community into the process to help fight the drug issues in their community. And I think it's a great idea. It's not fair to look at the cops and say, hey, go fix this problem or our legislators or the doctors, or the pharmacists. It takes everybody, bringing the housewives, the faith-based community, everybody in the community to attack the problem. So sorry for monopolizing it there, but I get on my soapbox every once in a while. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, Javier, anything to pitch in there? Yeah, no, I, of course. Thanks. And Jim, first of all, I want to thank, uh, I, you know, San Francisco. I know you're in the Bay Area and I have a little uh, special uh place in my heart as I was there four years in San Francisco, you know what, and I loved uh, the area, I loved to work closely with SFPD, remember the old BNE guys, remember them, uh, the Chippies, uh, it was just had a great time, I learned a lot, you know, and it was during the, the methamphetamine, a lot of methamphetamine was uh, coming into the Bay Area uh, from Mexico, a lot of the Mexican traffickers got to experience the uh, the growth of the marijuana houses, remember all that? And they were, oh, wow, it was just an experience I had never seen before. And, and like Steve, I started off with the sheriff's office in Laredo, and the same thing, I hated the feds, because at the sheriff's office, I started off working the jail, and 
feds would come in and treat us like, you know what, right? they no respect. And, you know, said if I ever become one, I'm going to be different. And hopefully we think we we did that. Uh, the, the strategy, you know what, one of the things uh, Jimmy brought up is what worked back then. I think it's it still works now. We need to emphasize this. But it, this is a joint effort. It's, it's a cooperative effort between everybody, not only, you know, like I said, working, you know, uh, with uh, with the PDs, the locals, I mean, they have some of the best uh, information. They know what's going on in the city. And when I was the agent in charge in every city, I went to Houston, I was in Puerto Rico, San Francisco. I made it a point to know what was going on at the street level. Because a lot of times you go in, you know the big picture, but to get to that big picture, you need to understand the little picture, which is sometimes we miss that. All right, hey, what's going on in the streets? Who's selling what? What type of drugs are out there? How are they bringing them all in? But, you know, in, in part of the strategy, and you know, we'll get into the, the chase of Pablo Escobar, was basically to go after all of the organization, not just one person, to, to wipe out, and you know, and that's one of our mandates at, at DEA is, is to dismantle the biggest, the baddest trafficking organizations out there. But you got to concentrate. You got to go after, all right, who's who's here? Who's the little guy over here? Who's the guy who's doing the money laundering? Who's the guy who's providing the, the cars for the transport? It, it, it is just, you know, it's a joint effort, and, and sometimes we miss that. And, uh, you know, I, I came on in 84, and uh, Jim, I don't know if you remember back then, but it was the, uh, you know, it was there was no cooperation. Remember, I always remember everybody, hey, we got a big takedown. Uh, boss, we can let it go. Uh, it's uh, the guys flipped. It's uh, it's going all the way to New York. Not take it down right here because we want the credit. Remember those days? And those days hopefully are long and gone, you know, because we learned. It's, uh, uh, and that's what one of the things that I think DEA is strategizing, prioritizing right now. So you got to extend that investigation. If it's coming from Colombia, Mexico, it's mm-hmm. coming through the border. The end place is going up to New York, to Boston, Atlanta. So, you know, there's some great uh, conspiracy laws in the book, conspiracy investigations, and the the, the strategies go after everybody, try to get everybody indicted. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that that worked with us when we're going after Pablo Escobar, that we prior, prioritized the investigations in the states as well as in Colombia. And then, you know, what was the beautiful, whenever it all came together, we would do simultaneous takedowns, mm-hmm. which we I, we haven't done that in a while. But in other words, we would take down a cell head in Medellin and we'd take down people in, in Miami, take down people, I remember, in Philadelphia, all at the same time. You know, and, you know, that sends a powerful message to all the cartels. Hey, guys, you think uh, you may not know your... You're the guy who's uh, manufacturing it in, uh, in the jungles of Colombia. Then all of a sudden you see on TV where your product has reached the Philadelphia 
community. So we're taking down people there. So it's a joint message. It's a very powerful message to all those cartels when you when you do this. You take down everybody who's involved with it. So I, I wish, and we're doing it now, but I think that's one of the, uh, one of our solutions when we're, you know, again, fighting this uh, so-called war on, on, on drugs. And uh, like and Steve said it best, we're going through some, you know, some trying times right now, but, you know, they're still our heroes, you know. And most, and you know, Jim, you know what I'm talking about. Most of our police guys, law enforcement, we're all good people. They're all good people. Once in a while, you're going to get that one other person who who is not, and we've seen it. And, you know, uh, like I said, they, they got through the system. You know what? And we get asked about DEA. We've had corrupt people at DEA. We've had people that did not do the right thing. Uh, and obviously, in the end, it all came out. But it's it's trying times. But we just still got to remember law enforcement. The majority of, of law enforcement right now is, is good people. They're out there trying to do good. They're uh, helping out uh uh, the public assisting, which is, you know, you know, assist and protect, and that's what they're doing. But again, uh, it's learning process, and, you know, I know that we're going to be getting better at that. Yeah. No, I think I appreciate that. I appreciate the words from both of you. And I think um, when you talk about the effect that you had, I think one of the things that you really accomplished in your uh, efforts in South America was setting up the intelligence uh, pipeline. We didn't know what was going on in South America before some of the investigations that you initiated, the extraditions you made to understand the entirety of the the business of drugs and and how lucrative it was in the United States. After all you went through in your federal pursuit, what do you what's it like to see what it is today with drug legalization, drug decriminalization? Um, you know, I think the the drug advocates pushed uh, this um, false narrative that there was a large percentage of people in jail for drug crimes. And uh, in California, for instance, it's probably 12% or less now that are in jail just for um, drug crimes. Federally, it's higher because you guys make the big narcotics bus, large amounts, ship loads, train loads, plane loads. And so people get there for longer amounts, longer sentences. But what do you what are you thinking when you see now that marijuana is legalized in more than a dozen states and it's decriminalized in in more than that? Well, for me, um, you know, look, first of all, you know, I mean, we have a speaking business where we travel around the world. We tell the true story of Pablo Escobar and we present that as a lesson in history. Now, think back when we were all going through school. Why do we study history? Well, ostensibly, you study history to learn from our mistakes so we don't make the same mistakes again, right? But we all know the reality is we continue to make the same mistakes. And it's the same thing in drug legalization. Look around the world at the countries that have tried it. It hasn't been successful anywhere. You may have contained it. You may have provided the users with clean needles and so forth, but they're still addicts, you know. And this is, you know, this sounds a little greedy, maybe on my part, but if people become addicts to the drugs, all three of us on this interview are hardworking, 
tax-paying, law-abiding citizens, right? Yep. Why should I have to use my tax money to take care of these people who choose on their own free will to become drug addicts but are no longer productive citizens in society who can't even take care of themselves? Now, I know there's functioning drug addicts out there, so the you know you naysayers out there, you know, you can make an argument against anything here, but I just don't feel that responsibility. Do I care for my fellow man? Damn right I do. I was in law enforcement for almost 38 years. I didn't do it, do it to go out there and be, you know, Billy Badass. I just felt like, and I know this sounds cliche and very naive when I say this, but, and I think the most majority of police officers do this. You go out there to help people, you know, and like I was talking about statistics, I bet if you look at the, the statistical reports of how many cops go bad or make really, really bad decisions like it's happened recently, I'll bet you it's less than 1%. And we're talking about tens of thousands of law enforcement professionals out there. But, it, you know, it doesn't matter what your profession is. There's bad bad apples in every profession, right? Right, right. So the, the legalization, you know, even if it's just weed, uh, you know what? So this is this is going to sound uh, a little counterproductive to our argument. I'm not in favor of legalizing weed because we've seen that it's a gateway drug. Um, when I was a kid, the first time I drank a beer, I hated it, you know, but you got to be cool in front of your peers. You know, I was probably 15 years old. And then the next thing, you know, one of the guys is stealing a bottle of wine out of his dad's liquor cabinet. And then the next thing is hard liquor, right? And so you see a progression to, to uh, continually stronger spirits when it comes to alcohol. Well, people smoke weed and they think, well, that's not so bad. So then, you know, they're going to try Coke, they're going to try heroin, they're going to try meth, they're going whatever it might be, opiates, whatever your drug of choice is. I just think it leads to a bad pattern leading you up to uh, a very strong potential for addiction. Now, here's the, here's the contrary, the contrarian part of that is, how many of I've discussed this? You know, my oldest son is a, is a surgeon in the Southeast United States, very, very successful. I've asked him to do research for me. I said, find me a credible report that says marijuana has a legitimate medicinal purpose. He hasn't found one yet, and I've been asking him for five, six years now. However, if you're suffering from chronic pain, legitimate chronic, chronic pain, not psychological, but actually chronic pain, and smoking weed reduces that pain for you, well, we don't believe anybody should live in chronic pain. So I know this sounds you know, counterproductive to what I stand for, but if smoking weed relieves that pain for you, I don't have a problem with that. You do what you got to do because everybody deserves you know, to enjoy life to the degree that they possibly can. One thing also is it's never been DEA's job to go after the users out there. You know, when, when legalization comes along, they want to point the finger at DEA. We don't go after people smoking weed. We go after distributors. And then people say, well, it's going to get rid of the violence. Well, we got a good friend in Santa Cruz, California, who's extremely well-to-do. He's got his own podcast. He's doing a great job, very successful in business. And one of his best friends, we were out in California a few months ago doing a podcast with him. And one of his best friends, one of his side businesses, was growing legal weed. Well, bad guys came in, forced him to take him to the weed, forced him to give up his money, and they murdered him. So where'd the violence disappear there? That's It's just such... BS is what I'm trying to keep clean up my language here for you, Jim. But it's just it's really BS that this is going to take care of the problem. It's right. ridiculous. No, and I hear you that um, you know again one of the promises from advocates, and I think the money the money element is huge, right? So one of the promises was that the black market would go away with the legalization of marijuana, but 
I, I think we've seen the black market is here to stay. Javier, anything on that? Yeah, well, and, you know, and I'm glad I got to experience that, you know, working in the Bay Area. I mean, some of those grow houses, some of this, you know, the, the some of the pot stores were making tons of money. You know that, you know, the pound of marijuana, we used to see it anywhere from four to five thousand dollars uh, up in uh, where they were growing it. You know, the Mendocino County was like. The business people would complain. We can't find people to work at fast food. They're all working out in the grows, you know, because of the of the cash uh, that was coming in. So we saw we saw the million dollar industry, uh, the black market, the people that were uh, getting rich. We saw the violence, the attacks uh, at the stores. And, and like Steve says, guys, you know, I always say, hey, if you got them smoking. We're not after the, the guy out there. You know, if it relieves the pain, hey, go go at it, you know, quality of, of life. But it's it's the organized people, the the the, the trafficking organizations that are uh, making uh, the money, you know, ruin it uh, for for everybody. And you know, and I'm also going back to you know education. I'm all into. We need to get better at our education process uh, with all this, you know, uh, drugs out there. We need to get better at our schools, at our with our families. Uh, just you know, get the message out. And I also I was a big proponent of the Dare program. And I found out that it was cut. And Steve is right. We get a lot of people say we love the Dare program. Anyway, it was just a, another education program that went away because of the lack of funding. Uh, but we're uh, I don't know right now, Jim. It's just uh, there's. You know, a lot of different types of very dangerous drugs out on the street. Uh, we've been working with a uh, with another company, you know, with the uh, illegal side. In other words, the counterfeit pills. And we've all heard the experiences. We've all uh, seen it. We've all, uh, you know, talked to someone who had a neighbor, who had a relative. Hey, take this pill. Don't worry, I know you're having problems sleeping. And it was a counterfeit pill. That person died during the night because of that counterfeit pill. So what, one of the messages, and whoever is out there listening, did not, did not take from someone, a neighbor, a relative, hey, here's a pill, because you don't know where that pill came from. And there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of what I'm talking about. I mean, and it's it's just sad uh, when you hear about it. You have good good people. Uh, we had one example, a young person, and he you know he was going through some uh, medical type issues, uh, could not sleep. He just wanted a one night sleep. He said, "Man, you know the pain." And the, the friend offered him, uh, uh, I think it was a. Xanax. Xanax, okay, yeah, Xanax pill. And, you know, this guy, just I just want one night sleep. The friend said, hey, take this pill. It'll make you sleep. Yeah, yeah, he went to bed, did not wake up. He died during the night because that pill from that friend who gave it to him, and I think he even sold it to him, had gone in in the black market, and it was supposed to be a Xanax pill, However, black market pill, it was a counterfeit pill. It was laced uh, with uh, uh, fentanyl. 
Mm-hmm. It, you know, we've all heard the horror stories with fentanyl. It was just a little bit of fentanyl in that pill, but that's enough to make uh, to kill someone. So, and with that example, you multiply it by a thousands, and you're going to hear a lot of the stories where, uh, oh yeah, just take it. You get it from a neighbor. <laughs> you know, I tell people do not get pills from friends, neighbors anymore after learning and experiencing all, all those uh, deadly uh, situations. So, yeah, it is a problem. So, yeah, we've all got these tragic stories. I'm, I'm sure across America people have these tragic stories about these links to the opioid um, situation and fentanyl, the flood of fentanyl on the market. Uh, when you came back from Colombia I know um, FBI agents tend to replicate uh, the successes and then take it to Quantico to teach it at the academy. Did you guys go back to the DEA and tell them how you did it? Did you train the new DEA agents on on how to do that? (laughs) No, we didn't. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Um, You know, and so, I mean, we got back to the United States. So Pablo was killed in December 93. I transferred back June 94. I think Javier came back September 94. Um, I went, I'd been four years in Miami in the late eighties then three years in Columbia. And I ended up in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is a beautiful spot. Love living there, but you know, they got drug problems too. I'd never seen crack cocaine until I went to Greensboro. But, um, you know how it is when you finish a case, you move on to the next case. So I come back to Greensboro and, and a couple of the people there knew about the Escobar case and our involvement, but it wasn't, you know, it's not like you show up in a new office and say, hey, I killed Pablo Escobar yesterday. What'd you do? You know, it's you don't you don't talk about it or you don't brag about it. Sure. I'm a firm believer in that old uh, saying that if you have to toot your own horn, it's not worth tooting. <laughs> you know, so we didn't make a big deal out of it. We I think that first year we had one company come to us to do the first documentary ever on Pablo, uh, a company called Frontline. But um, as as your career moves on. Um, you know, people find out about it. And if they ask us about it, we would talk about it, but we didn't bring it up, you know, just because it was just the case. So as people learn about it, they're like, oh, you guys ought to write a book. You ought to do a movie. Well, that's not why we did the case. You know, that's just the case we were assigned when we got to Columbia. And, and you know, thank the good Lord, we were successful with that case and we survived it. But um, later in our careers, as we got promoted and so forth, um Especially after 2000, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C., and a friend of mine is the local producer, and he introduced me to a couple of Hollywood producers, and, and Javier and I would discuss it, and we're thinking, well, you know, nobody really cares about this Escobar story, but I'll go talk to these guys. Well, both of these producers had personal agendas. They wanted to take our story and make political statements out of it. Mm. And that's, you know, that just confirmed for us it's all BS. Nobody really cares about Escobar. It's been so long ago. Nobody cares about this story. And so yeah, I forget what year. I think it was I think I got promoted to SES in two thousand eight or nine and Javier was before me. And you know, we're we're both running divisions. He's out in the field running division. I'm in a headquarters division. And we get a phone call from this producer in Hollywood. This guy says, Hey, uh, you know, this is my idea to do your story and and we were introduced through a, a retired Marine that Javier and I both worked with in Columbia. And I said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We're not interested. Well, I'm pretty sure the producer, his name's Eric Newman, fell out of his chair because we have found people will sell their soul to be on television, right? <laughs> hey, hey. 
And so he says, well, listen, if I come to Washington, which is where I was living, he said, I would you know, bring a couple of writers, would you just have dinner with me? And, and you know what? <laughs> Cops will understand this logic right here. I'm thinking, okay, these guys are going to take me to a real nice restaurant and they're going to pay. This is going to be a good free dinner. Yes, I'll meet you for dinner. <laughs> and so I did. But before they got here, Javier and I, we did our research on these guys. And Eric is successful in Hollywood. He comes from a Hollywood family. He's well-educated. So were the writers. And so when I met him that night, you know, our, our personalities clicked. And, and I liked the idea that they were talking about. And as we're leaving, Eric said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to discuss this, but I'm going to recommend that we move forward just see what happens. So, uh, he, and as we're walking, he said, one more question. He said, why are you and Javier so hes- hesitant to tell your story? And we told him, we said, the last thing we ever want is that anybody would glorify Pablo Escobar, who is nothing more than a mass murderer on top of being the world's biggest cocaine dealer. And Eric that night promised us that he would never glorify Pablo. Now, Eric is the creator and producer, executive producer of the Narco series. And in our opinion, he's lived up to his word the whole time. Um, and then, you know, it, it, uh, you can't work for the government, make money on the side. So in 2013, we were both coming up on mandatory retirement age, but because we were SES's senior executive service, the administrator offered us a three-year extension. We both accepted but then when, you know, we met those guys in March of 2013, by May, we'd signed contracts. In June, I pulled the pin. Javier stayed till the end of the year. You know, and it, it wasn't in July of 2013, we were sitting in Hollywood with the writers. Nice. So right the whole thing, we, we kept telling them, this is going to be a flop. Nobody's, you're wasting your money. Netflix is blowing their cash. Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's great entertainment, and I've heard on some other podcasts, uh, Javier, uh, you um, hand-selected Pedro Pascal to be your (laughs) – represent you. And, you know, I kept kept fighting with myself saying, don't ask Javier if all that stuff was true with the the female uh, informants and all of that. So, Jim, if you liked it, of course it's true. Only if you liked it. If you didn't like it, no, it's not true. You know, I, I tell people, you know that's the one part of Narcos that is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I tell people if all that stuff I did on TV was true, I think I'd be getting out of prison right right now. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a great. Uh, and it, this came from one of our California B&E guys. He says, have you ever been? I saw that series. And uh, he says, man, in the morning, you've already shot three or four people. You've had sex with three or four women. Then you go out and then you're, you're drinking, you're smoking a cigarette. Then you go out to lunch, man. Like, what else are you <laughs> So anyway, so there's a little bit of uh, what they call artistic uh, licenses in the, in the series. But it was it's, it's entertaining, Jim. It's uh, very entertaining. And we tell people, you know, the chronology of narcos is is accurate. The chronology, but some of the stuff we, yeah, sure. we didn't do we didn't do that stuff. But it's no one will watch a boring uh, a boring show. But I was like, see, man, no one's gonna watch it. Then all of a sudden, it's got a world uh, uh, appeal, you know. So it was all over the world, and you know, there's fans out there, and mm-hmm. that's why I see mentioned. But you know, when we do our presentations, we tell the real story, the real history, and it's a learning experience. And Jim, you brought up a good point with uh, DEA. You know what? We learned a lot. Uh, DEA as a whole, 
when we were doing this back in the late 80s, early early 90s, uh, we implemented new policies, new ideas. Uh, for example, it was just, uh, you know, you, you got to share that intelligence. One of the things we tell all the people out there, you got to share all that intelligence, all that intelligence in a fancy book, in a drawer that's hidden, no one can get to. What good is it if you cannot use it? Uh, and Believe me, there were agencies out there that didn't want to, that didn't want to share that that information. So we were like the opposite, guys. This is what's going on. Report everything. Here's the uh, this guy in Miami is running all the money for Escobar. This guy in Miami has all the cell distributions. Go after him, and all of a sudden we started learning that. Wow, that operation, that small guy in Miami, there's a boss there, there's a network there, and you got to start concentrating on them. So it was one of the things uh, that worked. And by being with with our with our counterparts, by being with them in Medellin, was another big su- success story. And we tell people, we just didn't show up at, hey, we're, we're here. They invited us to a system. So that's how Steve and I ended up there. We were invita- at the invitation of the Colombian government. And it was a great experience in that you're there firsthand, you're witnessing, you're seeing, you're getting the reports, you're getting the pocket trash of these traffickers, you're getting their phone numbers that they're calling uh, the rest of the world, the Mexican numbers, the U.S. numbers. So by being there, it was that information was not getting lost. It was being uh, put to a great use by, by sharing it. So that's one of the strategies that uh, that worked. And also is, we know what, we always give a shout out to the analyst people out there. We know there's a lot of great analysts. If it weren't for the analysts, I don't think we would have been able to do uh, uh, much of our work. So uh, every agency, has that unsung hero analyst. We love analysts because they're the ones who do all that uh, computer work, all that analysis, and in the end, pretty much, they give you a package that it's worth uh, the weight in gold. Right. Yeah, good words. Um, In your book, in Manhunters, uh, you start out at your roots, and it climbs, and it's built, and I'm uh, like I said, I'm at the halfway mark. For local law enforcement agencies, um, what can what can you tell them? What can you tell the the cop on the street as far as uh, drug investigations, maybe dealing with federal counterparts? What what should they be doing? Well, I'm not sure that I would tell street cop what to do <laughs> because uh, you know, in my opinion, they are the real cops. When we when you think of the word cops, sure, you know, and I don't use the cops. The word cops is a derogatory term. I, I'm proud that I was a cop for 38 years. Uh, but they, it's like Javier said earlier, they know what's going on on the street. You know, They might not, not know the bigger picture of the whole hierarchy of the organizations that's importing the cocaine or whatever the drug is in the United States. But they typically know a whole lot more than what feds know about street-level narcotics. Um, but that's a great place to start also as a federal agent because you go out and make your state local contacts 
And and quite honestly, you know, when I went to Greensboro, North Carolina, we only had five agents covering 26 counties. You know, we couldn't we couldn't even do a surveillance properly. So you tend to go out and, and make friends with your counterparts, and you know, if you go out there and, and lose that Fed attitude, things go a whole lot smoother. You're just there to help. I don't give a uh, I don't really care. Excuse me, <laughs> who gets the credit? Because you know what? In my agency, I'm going to get the credit. And in your agency, you should get the credit. That's the way it should work. And that's the way I always philosophize, and it always worked for me. But um, they will have such good intelligence that you can flip those people, you know, some of their defendants, and become informants. But then don't exclude them. Include them in the investigation. Now, their bosses might not let them, or they might pass it off to a narcotics unit. But, man, it just works so great when we're all working together. That's how we defeat the bad guys. You know, we're all working towards that common goal of taking out the organization. And here's kind of sad thing about the Medellin cartel. That was one of the first times that, you know, typically we'd go chop the head off that snake. But the heads, you know, the snake is like Medusa. It's got multiple heads and you got people waiting to step up. Well, this time we took that snake and we chopped it, the whole snake into little pieces. To our knowledge, there was only one surviving member of the Medellin cartel and he passed away a few months ago from cancer while he was in prison in Colombia. So, you know, it, that sounds like common sense. You take out a whole organization, mm-hmm. but it was not common back during that time. So that's one of the reasons we were so successful, just like Javier said previously. And, and also, Jim, I, I just got a, a, a great little story. When we first got to Colombia, we're talking about the local cop and like I said they're they're the ones they're that's their city they know what's going on we come there uh but going over you know when I remember to the Columbia National Police to their uh, intel unit uh, I always remember it was just kind of a real cold type of environment you know not a lot of uh you know there were not a lot of uh friendliness going on and then all of a sudden we start going back like every day to the intel try to hey and base and finally we asked them i remember what's what's been the problem or what 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 what's why are you sort of anti you know and in the and it's a very basic reason he says javier he says what we're pretty tired. We give DEA all this great intelligence, all this, like I said, actionable intelligence, and we get nothing in return. I said, what? Wow. Yep. In other words, it's a two-way street. And I don't know, I'm not putting blame on some of the older people that were there, but we learned uh, right away, Steve and I, you know what, all they wanted share that information with them. In other words, all right, hey, guys, you gave me this organization in Miami. Here are the results here. They're calling all this other numbers in Bogota. So it's a two-way street. I mean, they they were not getting it. It was a one-way street for them. That's why all of a sudden we started sharing that information, uh, giving them, uh, all right, hey, there's a couple of traffickers here, guys, that they're calling. These people are involved. So now we make it a joint investigation. And then, you know what, and the other one is just a basic uh, principle uh, in law enforcement that we all, everybody needs it and everybody likes it is that attaboy. 
guys, because of your information, we took down this organization. You put it in writing. I don't know, Jerry, remember all those? You know, it, it's good to be recognized once sure. in a while for the work you do. And sometimes we, we take that for granted. So there's bosses uh, listening out there. I always remember, you know, there's uh, – they're the ones on the street. They're the ones who knows what's going on once in a while. They, all of us, human nature, we need that pat on the back. Yeah, I think you, you both make a really good point of talking about the intel and spreading around the information where I think maybe it's from our generation, right? I mean, I started in policing in 1980 as well. And so siloed information, right? Everybody kept their own. Right. I, think, I think now when, you know, Javier, when you talk about analysts and uh, Steve, when you talk about sharing the information, crime mapping, uh, sharing information with gang injunctions, uh, identifying who the players are in, in each jurisdiction. I think that's happening much better now than when we were starting. And so hopefully that's uh, that's good information that officers can use and share towards the bigger goals. And. So in wrapping up, I'm going to ask you, what are you working on now? Tell us a little bit about the book. Where can people find it? Where, where can people uh, hear you speak next? Well, we're, we're victims of the coronavirus like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're under, this is our fifth year of, of our world tour is what our agents call it. Um, and it's been a blast, man. This is the last thing we ever thought would happen in our retirement years. And, and we're loving it. Uh, we were averaging about 75 shows a year. And that's that's a lot of travel. I was seeing Javier more than I saw my wife, but my marriage was stronger than ever. So maybe it was working out that way. I don't know. But, um, but when the virus came along, all of our events have been postponed or canceled. Uh, we have done a couple of virtual events. In fact, um, the uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, uh, we just did presentation for them, which as we're doing this today, their conference is starting virtually. So we've done a few virtual things, talked to a couple of high schools that way. Um, and that's just quite honest, that's to give us something to do. But our, our big thing is, uh, the book Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get the Kindle version. You can get it in Barnes and Noble books, a million, any place you can, you know, get quality books. It's available. But if you go to our website, we offer autographed and personalized copies of Manhunters. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to work out some kind of uh, we're, we're working with our professional that runs our website on how to, to get a discount for law enforcement. So we're hoping to have that come up here before long. Um, addition to that, two other pro and I hate to monopolize out here. Um, <laughs> we're working on a, a project called the Lost Clipper, um, where we're the lead investigators. And this involves the, the disappearance of 15 Americans in 1938 in the South Pacific. Now, this, it's a long story, but if we can prove our theories, this will be the first skyjacking in the history of the world. It was a Pan Am Airways Hawaiian Clipper that disappeared with the 15 Americans. The 15 Americans were murdered in, uh, on the island of Tonawas, which is part of uh, uh, Truck Lagoon, uh, Chuk, the, the area of Chuk, South Pacific. Um, if we can prove this, they were murdered by the Japanese. The first act of war against the United States by the Japanese won't be Pearl Harbor. It'll be the kidnapping and murder of these 15 Americans on the Pan Am Hawaiian Clipper. And now we believe we have evidence that ties the disappearance of the Hawaiian Clipper into the disappearance of Amelia Earhart in 1937, one year earlier. 
So it's, I love this kind of stuff. You know, it's just because we're retired doesn't mean you can't go on an adventure anymore, you know? Sure, sure, so sure. a couple of years ago, we went over to, to uh, the South Pacific for a couple of weeks and we took ground penetrating radar. We were searching for the 15 bodies. We didn't find them. Our next trip, we're going to take cadaver dogs with us, um, see if we can come up with them that way. So that's a big project. Yeah. And then our latest thing, which has not been announced yet, um, so this is unofficial, but um, we finally got agreements in place in a production company where we're hoping to do a television series about the real DEA. So it's um, it's 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 very infancy stages. We started doing virtual interviews right now. We haven't been out to the field to film anything yet, but that's looking real good. So, um, you know. I mean, for a couple of retired guys, we're staying pretty darn busy. <laughs> yeah, you're working cold cases in your retirement. That's great. <laughs> it, it makes you feel like you're still doing a little bit of good. You know what I mean? Yeah. But right now, Jim, like you said, we're just uh, like everybody else, just uh, watching uh, this pandemic, you know, the social distancing. Lately, we've been seeing the the spike in the cases coming up. I'm in uh, San Antonio, and uh, it's been on the increase here. So, like I said, we just got to tell everybody, be careful. We'll all get better. But, again, and I just, Jim, also, again, I mean, I loved working in the San Francisco. I had a great time. Learned a lot from the guys. There's a lot of courageous uh, people out, out there. And, uh, like I said, it, it was great. All right, um, and we'll we'll post your website, and I think you've got a discount. You want to tell about your your quick discount? We don't want to run it on the site in case it expires. But what I'd like to do, what Javier and I would like to do, is right currently we're offering a fifteen percent discount if you order through our website, um, and that does expire at the end of June. That was our, I guess, our contribution to the people being stuck at home and in self isolation. Give you something to read. You know, we market Manhunters as, as a sure cure for insomnia anyway. So uh, if you're having trouble sleeping, get a copy. <laughs> but um, we're working with uh, our guy. We would like to uh, present uh, Police One with a discount code so that law enforcement, if they log on to your site, listen to this interview, they can use that code and receive a discount on the book as well. Okay, awesome. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Javier, thank you, pleasure. Jim. Steve. Appreciate it. I saw you with uh, your book uh, oh, about a month ago, and um, I asked you if it was uh, any good, and you said, oh, it was okay. It was, uh, it was a decent read. I bought it. I'm enjoying it. I bought two copies for my sons, also both in law enforcement. Appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you again for listening. What do you think? What's going on near you? How are your relationships with your federal counterparts? We'd love to hear from you. Comment under the podcast or write us at policing matters at police1.com. Policing matters at police1.com. I'm Jim Dudley. Thank you, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. Thank, Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you. All the cops out there, be safe. Stay healthy. <laughs> We're behind you 100%. That's it, man.